This is a Federal News Network podcast. An executive order from the Biden administration is ostensibly aimed at protecting employees of services contractors. It would require a company that wins a follow-on contract from an incumbent to give the incumbent employees first right of refusal to work for the winning company. It's an idea that's come up earlier in Democratic administrations. There's a twist this time. Here with one view of it, the executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, I'm guessing the council is not thrilled with this rule. Thanks for bringing this up, Tom. This, this executive order, which is for those geeks who follow it at home like me, Executive Order 14055 talks about non-displacement of qualified workers under service contracts. The question that we have is why this is coming up yet again. Uh, This last came up some 10, 11 years ago under President Obama. Uh, There was a, a proposed rulemaking under that. This time around, the executive order actually includes the clause language for the federal acquisition regulation And we have lots and lots of questions about what it contains. Well, first of all, the idea that if you bid against another company, then have to hire that company's employees if it loses seems a little ridiculous on the face of it, simply because you have bid with your people and won with your people and your talent. It just seems like a strange approach because I wonder if it's even legal. So that's a great point, Tom. It really, in its essence, I understand the administration wants to protect workers. I get that. Um, We, too, at the Professional Services Council, rely so heavily on um, our member companies and their workforce to perform, not only win, but perform on contracts. This executive order unnecessarily denies government contractors the right to select their own workforce while they're still being held accountable for the work they perform under contract. So the the questions that we have are manifold on this this executive order. Uh, I'm hoping that the process plays out through a comment process on the FAR clause, as, as I mentioned, the Federal Acquisition Regulation Clause that's included in the EO. Um, again, we're all about the workforce. I just wonder how companies can bid on contracts without actually having the workforce in-house. It, it's sort of a fuzzy area. And what if the new company won because the government didn't like the employees of the incumbent. Maybe that's why they lost. Well, one wrinkle in this uh, executive order, uh, wrinkle may be uh, the wrong word for it. One um, complicating factor in this executive order is that it it has to be workers who perform well on the incumbent contract have uh, a right of first refusal to go to the the new company that wins the contract. I don't know how you define how a worker is working well under a contract. That seems to be a a huge gray area where you're really relying on the incumbent company to rate their employees. Are they working well? Did they perform well under that contract? And, And how do you translate that to a new company with its own culture, with its own rules, with its own pluses and minuses. And so you're exactly right. What if, what if the, the incumbent company did not win because of their workforce? And, and how do you translate that into the, the new contract? So again, a complicating factor. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. So what will the council and are you working with other organizations, other contractor groups to try to, to uh, argue this case? argue against the executive order? This is exactly what we're doing. We are expressing strong concerns about not only the the purpose behind the executive order, but really the devil is always in the details. And so we are working up uh, comments on the executive order. We will be sharing them with the administration. Again, I hope the process plays out in terms of asking for comments through a typical rulemaking process 
Um, and, and we will obviously be submitting comments there, too. You raise a great point. We are not alone in the Professional Services Council in having concerns, and we will be looking for other associations and organizations to partner with in order to make our case about why uh, the, the details matter here and, and what we can do to make sure that the intent of protecting workers is uh, is honored, but but not through something like this. And did this come as a surprise to industry? As you mentioned, Tom, this has come up before. Um, we are having at the Professional Services Council, uh, one of our principal um, conferences of the year, our, our vision strategic you know, forecast conference later this week on December 1st and 2nd. This is going to be a topic that will come up in the context of that conference. We are not surprised that the administration wants to protect workers. I, I am a little bit surprised that this came out without much socialization beforehand. We, you know, to my knowledge, uh, we were not consulted before this executive order came out. Then again, we don't have to be, um, but we certainly will be responsive to it. And of course, there might not be any new contracting because the continuing resolution runs out this week. And if there's no funding for the government, a lot of things become moot. So what's what's your thinking there? What are contractors doing to prepare now? This deadline sure came up fast. I wish I could say that uh, this is new and different in terms of yet another uh, continuing resolution expiring. But this seems to be old hat for us at this point. You know, we have over the last decade or so uh, very rarely had full full year appropriations when the when the fiscal year ends on September 30th with the continuing resolution expiring on Friday December 3rd I'm hoping Congress can can pass either another continuing resolution or you know if I had a wish it could be that they pass full year appropriations that's not going to happen so the question then becomes will they pass something by midnight on December 3rd Will it be a short-term CR? Would it be longer to, say, February or March? What we are advising our member companies to do is to engage with their contracting officers to ask, uh, where do we stand? What's going to happen? Making sure that everyone is, you know, full bore again, trying to avert a government shutdown. I have faith uh, as a former congressional staffer that Congress will act uh, before midnight, but I'm not a betting woman um, and I'm not putting any money against that. And of course, we had the COVID vaccine mandate come and go for federal employees. And that seems to be a success if by success you measure how many people got vaccinated. And that's most of them. So now the contractor deadline is yet ahead. Do you think this will spur that final push to to get everyone vaccinated on the contractor side with the government having set a pretty good example? So the federal contractor deadline for vaccinations, you have to be fully vaccinated by January 18th. And they define that as two weeks after the final dose, either the second dose of a two dose regimen or the final one dose of the one dose regimen and plus two weeks. So that takes you to January 18th. This was being tied to the OSHA emergency temporary standard for all businesses that had 100 or more employees. There has been a suspension of that ETS, that emergency temporary standard. Um, So commercial businesses are still uh, waiting to see how that plays out in the court system. And I suppose what the Department of Labor and their OSHA office wants to do on that front. But for federal contractors, you know, the folks who are not vaccinated at this point are really the folks who have medical waiver requests in or religious reasons for not getting vaccinated. And federal contractors are encouraged to to make every reasonable accommodation for those folks to include a testing option. We continue at the Professional Services Council to push for whatever makes sense. It needs to be a more common sense approach. And unfortunately, what some uh, workers seem to think is that since it was delayed, this deadline from December 8th until January 18th, that maybe there may be some wiggle room. Again, these are the folks who either have a uh, 
valid medical or religious reasons for not getting vaccinated, or they just don't want to get vaccinated. And it's that last set of folks who are the most intransigent, and we have to figure out a way in order to increase vaccination rates to make it persuasive to them. And we're not quite there yet. We are encouraging the administration to, again, take a, a common sense approach to folks um, and see where that takes us. It's good to live in interesting times. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only 
my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., 
I gain the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.